Welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the podcast that makes time and space to think about pedagogy, teaching and learning, professional development, anything of interest to time-poor but enthusiasm-rich primary teachers. This week, it brings me tremendous pleasure to introduce today's episode, an interview with the one and only Aidan Severs. During our chat, we discuss Aidan's blog writing process, the role social media plays in education, subject leadership, and much, much more. If you enjoy this episode, and I know you will, then please leave a review wherever you're listening now. That's enough for me. Without further ado, let's spend some time thinking deeply about primary education. So this week, I'm delighted to be joined by Aidan Severs. It's great to have you here, Aidan. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. It's, uh, you've, you've kept me company on many a journey. Uh, well, almost real life, online. That's an absolute pleasure. Now, we always begin with our guests in numbers to get a feel for who they are. So my first question to you is years as a teacher. Okay, so that was 15 full years. I did a little bit extra. Years as a deputy head teacher? Uh, so that was three full years as a deputy. Blog post published? Now, these these are the ones where it gets a little bit iffy. I reckon it's just over 400. So that includes a fair wow. few book reviews and things like that as well. But it's somewhere around that number. That's amazing. Some dedication needed. What about blog post views? Again, it's it's a fairly rough number. So on my old blog, which ended up being called thatboycanteach.co.uk, which is still up and still gets hundreds of visits a day, I think, through Google. The number on that is over 1,600,000. And then um, I can't find the figure for my current blog, which I've had since oh, maybe September last year. Uh, but that's it looks like it's around 35,000, but... I'm not sure if that's whole site views or, or just the blog. That's amazing. I don't know how it compares, to be honest. I don't know what other people's are at all. No, I mean, yeah, 400 posts, over a million views. <laughs> you know, pushing <laughs> 2 million probably. <laughs> yeah, I think that's, that's a blog that people have found very interesting and very useful, I reckon. Hopefully. <laughs> Most important year group? Oh, Surely no one gives a straight answer to this one. Um, I was thinking about it and I kind of kept pushing myself down and down and down until I got to early years and thought, you know, so much of what goes on in um, the early years has such an impact on what happens later um, with with the gap only growing seemingly between early years and later. And so I know that children come in at early years with you know, different starting points, but it would seem that the more you can do at that younger age to address that, then the, the better chances those children have. So although I've never taught there, never been a specialist in that age, I, I do think so much hinges on what happens in that year. Yeah, I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense to me, and I think it's quite a popular answer. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> I'm totally with you. 
What about your favourite gear group? Well, I've got to say year six. Um, I I trained in key stage one, but I was given a job in year three as an NQT, and then I only ever went up the school after that to the point where I'd done three, four, and five, and I kind of needed six to complete the set. So at that school at that time, I said, please, can I go into year six? Um, this wisdom and folly in that, I think. But I think once you are a year six teacher, you often kind of get typecast as a year six teacher. So I spent a fair bit of time teaching year six, and I do love it, despite the pressures. Um, I guess I kind of like the older age and the, I guess, sort of, you can be a bit more sarcastic with them and so on. And some some good some good discussions and things happen up in year six so i would definitely say year six is my favorite yeah i know what you mean about being typecast there's a lot of operational knowledge that's very specific to that year group and if someone has to learn it from scratch every year yeah you know, it's making life more difficult yeah def i mean the, the two things i guess would be how do you do sats logistically and do you know particularly all the maths and, and maybe the grammar stuff that you need to know to be able to teach it well uh, can be a bit daunting, I think. Yeah, we, I think we've talked about in the podcast before how to navigate those moderation situations as well, because there's an art to it mm. you know, that sort of makes it as oh, easy yeah. as possible. Yeah, and it's it feels very personal, doesn't it, as well, that this is me being judged rather than the culmination of a whole time spent spent in school. Yeah, yeah. And then the big one, tweets. <laughs> I had to, as you saw, <laughs> ask how to find this out. Um, but yeah, 78.6k, so somewhere in the region of that. Wow, that's amazing. Again, I don't know how that compares to other people. Um, it's the second highest. I think Steph Elliott had over 100,000 <laughs> in season three. Right, okay, yeah. That compute, computes definitely. But it ranges from thousand to hundred thousand, so anywhere in between, you know. <laughs> I think I'm around ten, eleven thousand. Right. <laughs> so, okay, okay, yeah. I had I had a very active few years. I definitely think most of those occurred then. Uh, I don't think it's so regular this at the moment. You'd be surprised how many people ask me how to find. Like Matt did it during the recording, and um, whenever I first interviewed oh, him, oh really? Yeah, and he was like, "Okay, <laughs> let's stop the whole process so we can find out how many tweets <laughs> I've done." <laughs> well, I'm glad I did my little bit of prep. Yeah, you're the first person brave enough to ask <laughs> online in advance. <laughs> <laughs> so, Eden, you're a teacher, subject leader, school leader, and most recently an education consultant. Tell us about your journey and how you got here. Okay. Um, yeah, well, I guess all of those things I, I have been, at least in the past, I think, whether I'd call myself them now, whether I'm allowed to call myself them now, I'm not sure. I don't, I know that I've kind of put myself in this position of no longer having the voice of somebody who works in schools. Uh, and I, I kind of appreciate that that uh, means there are certain things I can say and can't say. But in terms of my journey, I have been all those things in the past. So I think my journey probably starts when I was in sixth form and I didn't have a clue what I should do at uni. Um, and family friends kind of said to me, oh, you, you're pretty good with kids. Why don't you be a teacher? I was the eldest of five, so I was fairly used to 
Um, I, I think being quite helpful with younger kids. Um, so really, because I didn't know what else to do, I started looking into unis where I could do a teaching course. Uh, at that time, it was the, the kind of popular thing was the four year course degree plus teaching stuff on the side, which actually when it happened was way more teaching stuff with a subject on the side. So I, yeah, I went to uni, did the four year course. That was art. That was my kind of degree with primary teaching. Thankfully kind of found out that I was fairly good at teaching, obviously as, as good as you ever are when you're training. Although, you know, sometimes there are some absolutely smashing trainees and you think, how can you do this after such a short amount of time? It took me years. Um, but yeah, I was all right. I did okay with it. Got a job. Uh, that was, as I said earlier, I went for a key stage one job because I'd specialized in key stage one teaching. May, I don't know, maybe for the third, third and fourth year of the degree or something we had to choose. And then got put into year three, I guess they thought, well, it's not that different to year two. So I got that job. And as I said, I only ever went up from there. So in that school, did my NQT year. Again, did all right. I wasn't setting the world alight with my teaching. Um, had a really amazing uh, year group partner who was more experienced, very organized. And she kind of taught me a lot about um, the practicalities of getting stuff done so that it's efficient and effective, um, which is something that I've always tried to be ever since. Um, so I did three years in year three, a couple of years in year five. There, that was all at the same school. During that time, as an RQT, I became art leader simply because, well, I suppose because I had the degree, but also the art leader retired at the end of my first year. So somebody needed to take it on. Um, I did various bits of kind of what I feel like were quite tokenistic leadership roles in that school as well. I was, I kept trying to apply for things like phase leadership, but I wasn't getting it. I moved to another school where there seemed to be a bit more promise. I became a year four teacher there. And during that time I had, a, I did end up getting a few leadership roles. So I was, I led on reading, I led on implementing the whole 2014 curriculum um, and at the same time computing, particularly because it was a, a massive shift from the old kind of IT curriculum that we had. Um, that's where I went into year six. I did two years in year six there, or maybe three, I think it was two. I can't remember now. Uh, and that then, it was then when I started to feel not, oh, I could do this better in terms of leadership, but you know, I've started to develop ideas about how things could be done leadership wise and started looking for assistant headship positions. And I got one in a school that had just been put into special measures. And they were, I think the, the line on the advert was join us on our journey to good. So they had this ambition to obviously turn the school around and to have that noticed by Ofsted. So I got that role there. It was upper key stage two lead, year six teacher and maths lead as well. So took on all of that, did that. We got the school to good um, within a couple of years and 
that started to feel like, right, I did what I came here to do. At that point, so that was in the, the Dixon's Trust, and it, it, it wasn't for the, I think the first term I was there, it, they were kind of going through the process of academizing. We became Dixon's. Yeah, I think my fourth year there, I went part-time, led lower key stage two, and I went part-time as primary lead practitioner across the Dixon's Trust. So working with the four primary schools that Dixon's have in Bradford um, on various projects, introducing instructional coaching, um, kind of teacher development roles, curriculum development, um, and kind of in one school where I was doing that curriculum development, it was kind of a, a, a helping hand. The, the, the head had left, the deputy had stepped up, but there was no deputy in place. And that's the school that I then, after that year, went and became deputy at. So at that school, they were a new primary attached to a, an existing secondary that had academized. They'd had a whole new building and a whole primary kind of wing added to it. So the school was growing year on year. When I first went doing two days a week, um, they, they were up to year four. So that year I started as upper key stage two lead. We only had year five, but it was brand new, brand new curriculum, brand new approach, um, and kind of not trying to reinvent the wheel, but trying to get everything in place so that we hit the ground running and we didn't have to rework things later on so then became deputy there year five we took them through year six unfortunately that was then when covid hit so we kind of didn't get to do that whole proper journey with them because it was a through school as well we were really excited about the prospect of taking these children right the way through and i mean effectively we have but covid made that more difficult we always kind of thought the SATS results are going to be proof of what we're doing here and we never got them. Obviously, this year was the first year uh, that we got those results, but I have since moved on. But I have heard about the results and they were pleasing. So that was good to kind of find out that the work we'd put in over those few years was had kind of come to fruition in that way. And then, yeah, at Christmas last year, I left and became kind of a self-appointed education consultant uh, and I've been doing that since January up till now so I think I think that sums it up in a rather long-winded way how yeah. did you feel about not having a full key stage two did you find that you had more space to focus on the things you thought were important yeah definitely I mean we we literally had the physical space as well um which when we got a year six in um we had to kind of dial back what we were doing because we'd kind of luxuriated in the amount of physical space there was. But yeah, it, just having a year five cohort to start with meant that, although I was kind of getting to know the school and stuff as well, it meant that, yeah, you could put all of your energies into making sure that those, because it was two new teachers, one NQT, one experienced, really great teacher, and me, um, and an experienced TA as well, who knew the school kind of inside out. Um, yeah, it just, me it just meant that we could really focus on how we did that. But we always had in mind that this wasn't just year five. These were next year's year six children as well. Um, and because 
I had a year six background, the other teacher had a year six background. I think it's it kind of sounds bad, but we almost saw it as year six minus one or whatever, um, rather than just year five. Because I think one of one of my frustrations in the past as a year six teacher has been, well, it's all right for anyone who's not year six because you don't have the pressure of, of the SATs and so on. So it was, it was kind of the opportunity to bring some of that, not necessarily a difference in practice down to year five, but just that awareness of what the end goal is in terms of sats it sounds like i'm just obsessed with sats but they're just an inevitability they're there and my view is that you know to serve the children well they need to be well prepared for it so yeah it, it allowed us to think more holistically about upper key stage two i think before thinking right what's happening in year six Go, but going back to curriculum it was the year six curriculum was planned during that year as well so it wasn't like we got to the end of year five and then thought what should we do next um and the, the curriculum development had been a bit like that it had kind of been built year on year before i got there so over my time there i went back and kind of made tweaks and changes especially to get that kind of sequential approach to it a bit more consistent i think you're right there is a distinction between teaching pupils and making sure they're ready for national examinations like you know I, yeah. sometimes i think that disadvantaged pupils who don't do 11 plus prep at home you know when they see examinations it's different yeah. it's more anxiety inducing yeah. i don't know if it's fair to say um so there is a, a part of our role is making sure that we're doing everything we can to make sure that when they do inevitably meet that situation they have to so i can i can see where you're coming from good <laughs> <laughs> i mean not that you need my validation we had we had something similar with the project that i've been doing for the last couple of years and we were building up building up and so that this year's year six we're in year four when the pandemic mm -hmm. sort of started and at that point they were doing so well that we thought that year six was going to be a, a breeze for them and then obviously you know you don't have you don't have the opportunity to work with the pupils that you need to work with most and you know things went really well in the end but we had to work twice as hard once things start to reopen so i, I can totally see where you're coming from with that yeah yeah so i think there are lots of things i'd like to ask you about i think it makes sense to start chronologically with your blog that boy can teach which you know, as we've seen by any metric, was ultra successful and tremendously well received. Now, I think you also had a blog that where you reviewed hip hop releases. <laughs> yeah, it is. So, so I think <laughs> yeah, you've got, a while you, back. <laughs> I, th I think you've got something. You know, you you understand how to connect with people and how to get your message out there. But what do you think it was that brought readers to you? I I think first and foremost blogs were fairly popular back then and that helped people wanted to read blogs um, i think back then i really focused on writing things about being optimistic and positive and kind of practical stuff about making teaching work in terms of work-life balance and so on and i think although uh, i'm not saying it was all well received because there were some people who 
felt like it was unrealistic and that, um, you know, I should keep my ideas to myself. But I think by and large, it was well, well received because I was being positive and I was, I was saying the good things about teaching, but also kind of trying to be realistic that it can be difficult and trying to be practical about what the solutions might be. I think there were, there were other things where I kind of tapped in to what people were thinking a lot about. So I, I can't remember if it was 2015 or 2016 when I started blogging about education, but it was certainly not long before we had that 2016 SATS paper, the reading one that kind of really threw everyone's results. Um, and people really, I mean, if I'm honest, before then, the kind of idea of a daily reading lesson, I mean, regardless of what the content was, it kind of wasn't there for me in this, in any of the schools I'd worked in. And from what I could tell, it, it wasn't in a lot of schools as well. It was seemed to be the watershed moment when people started thinking, hang on, th there might be some teaching we can do here around reading. And so I did quite a lot of reading of research, particularly around that point, um, around how we might be able to teach reading. And I have to say, like, going back, there are certain things that we did back then to try to address that issue that I wouldn't do anymore. And that, you know, we, we didn't do, for example, at my last school, um, you know, thinking in terms of things like content domain and so on, and, and allowing that to shape the whole kind of process. Um, but I, I was kind of blogging along with what I was doing. For, well, for reasons that we'll probably discuss later, really. And people were interested in that. So I think that that helped with the, the popularity as well. Um, <laughs> whether I need to go back and kind of say, actually, what I said back then is not quite what I think anymore. Uh, I'm not sure. But yeah, I think com combination of positivity and kind of practicality was perhaps what 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 drew people in. That's what, that's what being a teacher is, though, isn't it? You know. We don't mm. teach now the way we did year one. We think about our practice, we refine our practice, and then we continually repeat that process over time. You know, so if anyone were to hold you to things you said in 2015, <laughs> I think they'd need to yeah. be honest with themselves. You know, that uh, well, maybe that's not how the world really works. Yeah, I think so. And it's it's yeah, it's part of that reflective process, which is one of the most important parts of being a teacher, really, isn't it? being reflective and then being responsive to what what you found out. I mean, our plan is to go for 20 years and do maybe 948 episodes of Make It Is, if you do one every week in that period. I can't imagine yeah. what 50-year-old me is going to think if I <laughs> said that. <laughs> it's not worth thinking about, is it? No, Who knows, about, yeah. Who knows what's going to change? <laughs> I mean, you were saying there about how some people had sort of voiced objections and i don't know if i'm stepping on the toes of later mm. questions but like how did you deal with that because that's not something i've encountered much but i do know that when i do encounter it it takes up all of my day thinking about it and trying to suppress the those sort of you know the fact that this isn't necessarily the most important thing in the world yep that's the same with me i yeah i'm a massive perfectionist and i think a lot of teachers are and um, 
I think it's what makes us good at the job in in many ways. But um, yeah, I just I just worry about it and think. I mean, so I mean, I am always open to changing my mind, changing my opinion, um, and and being hopefully being honest about that when when it when it happens. But it yeah, it can really get to you, and you think. You question yourself first and foremost if you're a decent person. But then if you kind of get past that, there were times when I just thought, well, I just feel really sorry for that person because I am trying to be helpful. I'm trying to be useful. I'm not trying to point the finger in any way. Um, I'm just trying to say what I've found to work for me. And I know everyone's situation is different, and that's why I would never kind of never say, well, this is an absolute must for everybody. I know everything is contextual, but yes, it, it can be quite disheartening. And for something which is just a, a little hobby and something which you just do on the side and maybe do it for a bit of fun or maybe do it because you, you have a desire to help people, it, it, it can be a bit disappointing and probably disproportionately so. Because um, I think you put, you put something of yourself out there and... Um, it is hard to deal with. And I think when it's devoid of the kind of the rest of human interaction, because it's all online and because things can be misconstrued and because people come with their own kind of uh, misconceptions and kind of, like I say, their own context, you just don't really know how anything, whether it's a tweet or a blog, how it's going to be received. You can never really be sure, no matter how much time you spent trying to say it in the best way, because... Yeah, everyone's different and communication is two-sided. It's so much about the interpretation. Yeah, you're absolutely right. The, the amount of editing I did when I first started this to make sure that it was <laughs> as balanced as possible. And then, mm -hmm. you know, it gets interpreted on purpose in the wrong way sometimes. And you're, well, you know, I might as well just yeah. put it out the way that, the way we originally intended and go from there, you know. But, um, yeah, but like, I, I, I've been fortunate, you know, that 99% of the time, you know, people understand the the spirit in which the message is sort of sent across. Yeah, I think you know? I think it it was definitely the case that it was more well received than than not. So you you just have to try and see it in the balance, don't you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you need someone messaging going, "Remember all those nice things people said," <laughs> you know, or a little reminder yeah. on your phone. I'm I'm terrible at doing that. Yeah. <laughs> well, always focusing on what could be better. So, I mean, I think it almost ties in to where I was going with my next question. I mean, were there any unintended consequences to your rising profile and how did you cope? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's funny. I mean, I think in the next question, you've used the word celebrity and it doesn't feel like that at all. It's just for some reason, a, a, a crazy number of followers on Twitter. I don't I don't understand it, really. But anyway, yeah. So I. I can't remember how far back we go in terms of being in a network on Twitter, but initially I started off completely anonymous and I think I had, yeah, I think, I, I can't remember. I think I was like Mr. Teacher at That Boy Can Teach or something. My blog back then was actually called Why I've Stayed in Teaching because it was a bit of a re response to all the why I've left teaching articles that were going around at the time. 
Um, and I was totally anonymous. I was in this assistant head job and I was kind of blogging away about all this stuff I was doing. Um, partly because, not because I didn't want people to know or I was ashamed. I was just aware that, you know, people put this kind of disclaimer, personal views on, on their Twitter bio or whatever. I, I just didn't, not that I was intending to say anything against anyone or anything bad. I just didn't want something to be misconstrued and then for it to come back on me, to come back on my employers um, and to potentially jeopardize my job. So that's why I was kind of incognito, but that started getting really hard as well. Um, so what one thing was that I was approached by TES to write some stuff and it, it started to feel like, well, this is going really public. People who I know could like very conceivably read this stuff and maybe start identifying or starting to think, hang on, that sounds familiar. Uh, and I think that was at the point that I told my, my boss, the head at the time, and also the CEO of the trust, I think she spoke to him about it just because it was going in TES and they put a little bio and how much should I identify myself and things as well. But the, there were two other things. One was that I was starting to have nightmares about being found out again, even though I, I wasn't doing anything particularly wrong. It was just actually quite hard to maintain the kind of, not a fake persona. I still believe I was being myself, but just, just to maintain the, the secrecy, I suppose. Um, so, so that was a catalyst. And then the third thing was that I went on some training, some some reading training with another local trust and they started flashing up all my stuff on the screen and saying go check this out use this have a look at this and I was sitting in the room thinking that's all mine I, did, I didn't care about them sharing it that's why I put it out there but it just felt really ridiculous basically that I was being told to do stuff that I'd created by someone else um so I think, yeah, those, those three things kind of work together for me to, yeah, put, put my profile picture up there, put my real, put my real name to it. Although I only switched to my real name as a, a handle probably in the last year, I think, uh, I can't remember when that was. Um, I don't know if that really answers your question, but my experiences have been very much kind of um shaped by the fact that i was anonymous first and that's kind of what springs to mind when i think about what the difficulties have been otherwise having that many followers doesn't really make a difference to anything <laughs> i can see what you mean because i mean i've read quite a lot about espionage and particularly the sort of post post-war period and lots of the main players particularly those who joined the kgb at a young age they turned to alcoholism very very quickly because of the pressure of maintaining yeah. their other identity. You know, obviously that's a very, very extreme situation. Yeah. Oh, but I can imagine I've there would be mental. I've heard some yeah, about undercover policemen and things like that and how difficult it is to kind of maintain those two, uh, kind of two lives, basically. And I think it did start to feel a bit like that, even though it, it sounds really ridiculous. But I think it was just because things were getting out there that I'd done and... I was, it's not that I wanted to claim them or I didn't want anyone to use them. It, 
it was just difficult to manage that secrecy. Um, and and pe people did find out as well. So one of the teachers who I was working at the time apparently knew for a very long time. And then on the day I left, she kind of gave me this a Lego Batman because one of the blog posts that um, Emma Kell put it in one of her books actually was Teachers Be More Batman. So she was kind of subtly referencing the fact that she knew and, and she'd worked it out because things sounded very familiar that I was writing about. So, um, yeah, it was getting out there anyway. I remember that post. I remember talking to you on a Sunday morning about it um, about the psychology oh, really? of Batman. I can't remember the exact details of the psychology of Batman, but <laughs> it was an interesting conversation. Yeah. Did you find any additional pressure? You know, say, so maybe say you had maybe 30,000 followers, probably more than that in the end and um, or currently. Was there was there extra pressure on, on what you said and, and your tweets and things? Yeah, well, I definitely I'm, I try to be careful with what I say. Um, and there's been some situations, I think mostly not in not anything to do with education at all, where I've kind of said something very uninformed and not thinking and it's kind of really come back on me and those are the days when you just have this sick feeling in your pit of the, in, in the pit of your stomach and you just think why did I put that why did I say that so I think I've gradually learned kind of to 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 really be careful about what you put out there and that that's my main strategy don't put it out if it if it might have that sort of comeback i don't have the kind of strength to put it out there anyway and say i don't care about what people are going to say social media feels like it brings all the negatives of celebrity you know i'm, I'm, I'm not equating uh social media presence is to celebrity but there is a <laughs> there, there are a lot of negatives yeah. in that particular world you know but without the financial reward you know because if I'm earning yeah. millions of pounds, well, people can say what they want because I can just relax in my mansion with my pool and, you know, let it yeah. rub off my back. But actually we're in classrooms, we're in schools and we're working one of the hardest jobs possible. You know, so do you have any, do you have a set of guiding principles for engaging with social media in a healthy and positive way? I think it almost ties up everything we've sort of discussed so far. Yeah. Yeah. I reckon there's six things and I think, yeah, we've kind of mentioned some of them. First thing is don't tweet too much. And I think that automatically reduces <laughs> the chances of things coming back to you. Um, one, because you're not just putting out whatever comes to your head at that moment. Uh, two, because you're not kind of sitting there always checking it, which there were definitely times in my life where I was kind of glued to my phone, always ready, always trying to respond. And I think that's when my follow account did grow because I think it, the algorithms kind of favor that type of interaction. Um, I, I mean, my, I don't think it's grown significantly for years now, my account, because now I just don't have time for that. And I, yeah, I deliberately try not to do too much. So yeah, don't tweet too much. That's the first step. Uh, second one is don't enter into existing fights, which there are always, uh, you know, they're always happening on Twitter. And they're always about the same sorts of things. They're always things that, yes, of course, I have an opinion on. Um, but no, I'm not going to wade in and try and change people's minds because I've, I've rarely seen that actually happen. I don't think, despite, you know, still tweeting and still blogging and so on, I don't think Twitter's the place where 
people go to have their minds changed it's how they go to say what's on their mind so yeah don't get into existing fights like i said third one don't be too controversial i think um because again as i've said social media is so devoid of the whole range of human interaction or the features of human interaction so much gets taken in the wrong way and i think i'm quite happy to be controversial but on a personal one-to-one level um and it's not even about being controversial it's about saying what you think to be true and um yes i'll do that one-to-one personally in a situation where people can really understand what i'm saying and what i mean where I can clarify if I need to, where they can come back, where they can read my body language and see that I'm not being antagonistic. I'm just saying what I think is true. Um, so yeah, I just really try to avoid that on Twitter. And sometimes I probably do put something out and then I'm like, no, delete that <laughs> before anyone sees it, before anyone can come back to it. Um, so yeah, that's the third one. Fourth one is I really do use those features of Twitter where you can mute certain words. So you'd probably laugh if you could see my muted word list. There's things on there that relate to line of duty because I didn't want spoilers. There's things on there related to politics because I just see too much of it. Um, And then there are things on there uh, relating to education. So my latest one, and this might make no sense in October whatsoever, but I have muted unmet needs and behavior because i just can't see any more of that um um, so yeah i'd use those and i do occasionally use the kind of mute or block features if i've had repeat kind of run-ins with certain people who i can kind of see right i know what your agenda is here it's kind of to come along and railroad and bully so i don't need that and i believe that it's my right to do that i i still have a very um diverse range of opinions coming through on my feed um i I deliberately try to listen to voices from all over the place um but i'm not willing to listen to people who can't deliver that message in a a respectful way so so they go they get locked or muted or whatever depending on the severity fifth one is if things do kick off and they do um is to just try and be the bigger person as you would in real life, really. I think no matter how much you try to avoid stuff, there will always be things will always happen that make you feel unhappy, basically. And it's about just trying to be polite, trying to be kind and just walking away from it. And then the sixth one is, is, and probably one I'm not that good at, although I do intend to do it a bit this summer is to just have time away from it as well. Um, and to kind of say, right, yeah, I'm not really going to get involved at all for a couple of weeks just to get your head out of it. Cause it, can, it sounds so, yeah, it sounds so sad, doesn't it? But it is, it can draw you in. And it is, I mean, it's designed to be addictive. If you understand the, the design principles behind social media, it is designed to get you hooked and um, cleverly uses what your interests and uh, kind of hobbies are to do that. Um, so yeah time away from it if you can i've i was i was a no smartphone person in the past but the lockdown changed that um because it was just impossible to really stay in touch with people properly when we weren't seeing people in real life so um i tried to yeah try to limit the use in various ways 
so yeah those are my six my six ways to survive social media sometimes we have people who listen to the podcast you know maybe they'll find it through apple or spotify and then they'll join twitter and they'll message and say oh yeah you know really enjoy the podcast mm. i think this will be invaluable for them because you're i'm thinking about all the times i've done the opposite of your advice <laughs> Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I had a... all of those bits of advice come from uh, <laughs> mistakes I've made. Yeah, I had, I had a thirty-two ten for a while, but I missed a couple of important phone calls because the signal just wasn't on the same level. Yeah. And I thought, okay, alright, I'm gonna have to bite the bullet, but I will yeah. turn my phone off. And um, yeah, I mean, like certainly in the evening times, I try not to use it at all. And you know, although we're going to be releasing this in October after I've recorded uh, a string of episodes for season five i'm going to wait at norfolk for two weeks and then or norfolk for a week and then ireland for a week and in that time nice very very reduced mostly because the signal will enforce it um yeah but, but also because <laughs> i think nothing's going to be missed you know i can i can send out my saturday morning tweet and yeah if someone has a question they'll still be there when i when i get back you know yeah they will it's and you're just not you're not beholden to any of these people as much as you know you've got these relationships with people online uh, and you might have met some of them in real life. It's not normal. It's not natural life to kind of have thousands of people kind of at your beck and call or vice versa. And I just think, yeah, you just got to step back and do, do normal life a bit sometimes. And you don't owe anyone anything online. At the minute I'm blocking anyone who, has an advertisement, so companies, because because uh, tw right, okay. Twitter has completely changed, and it's just basically what yes. Facebook used to be with lots of advertisements. I'm, all, I'm going to block that company, yeah. block that company, and eventually there'll be no companies left to advertise to me. The new thing is you click on a tweet, don't you? And you scroll down to see the replies, and the first thing is an advert. Yeah. Like, that's that's just started, and it's so, so frustrating. It's always something that I don't care about either. So yeah. We've obviously not got the uh, algorithms right on that yet. It's usually about games to play on your phone, which is just not something I will ever do. Yeah, so it'll be interesting how long we can continue like that if the user experience is, uh, yeah. is, is watered down, you know, but we'll, we'll see. But I, I think those are so yeah. solid pieces of advice, guiding principles that can help anyone, you know, and hopefully they will help people avoid um, sort of extended periods of, uh, of discomfort because of interactions on social media. Mm. Because there, there's mm. so much great stuff to get on it, you know. I think I joined in 2016 and got lucky that I started following people with, you know, fantastic blogs, fantastic um, sort of outlooks on education, things that most schools are talking about now in 2022. Those conversations were happening. And so I, I felt like, oh, yeah, this is fantastic. I, I've had like early access to the best that's been thought, you know. So I think it's, it's not to say that it's completely negative, but I do think that we need to be careful because we are patient zero in this great experiment you know, where we don't know what social media is like. We, we've lived before the internet. We're living as the internet mm. grows. So there's been no rigorous testing of what the, the impact might be. If we can slightly turn our attention to your blog writing process. And obviously you've been prolific in the past. You're still very prolific at the moment. From idea to publication, what was the process and is it has it changed over time? I think there are several processes depending on what is being written about. And 
I think I think perhaps it's not changed that much. Um, as you mentioned before, I had written before I had an education blog, and that that hip hop blog I had, um, I, I did. I did prioritize writing. It was an exercise in creative writing for me. So it wasn't uh, just let's put a video up or a song out there or whatever it was. I was trying to write well whilst doing that. Um, and I think for me, it just turns out that one of the ways that I geek out about the things that I'm into is by writing about it. And I think, uh, yeah. I'm pretty sure I've started other blogs at other times as well that perhaps haven't uh, taken off so much, but that's just one thing that I, I seem to like to do. Uh, but yeah, I think the process has always been fairly similar, and I think, but I think there are a couple at least processes that I do go through. And Doug Lamov's got a really uh, good blog post about three different kinds of writing in the classroom, and two of them are really relevant to how I've written a blog so he's got formative writing and summative writing and i can't remember what the third one is but that's that's the one that's not relevant um so the formative writing is one where i'm using the writing process to help me learn more about the thing that i'm trying to find out about whether that's learning more from for example a piece of research or whether that's learning more about what i think myself um actually put in well not well sometimes i do sometimes handwrite my blogs if i'm out and about and i've got my notebook and pen which i nearly always have then i'll i'll scribble it out but otherwise it's just straight onto the computer or even into my phone i've got plenty of notes of full blog posts that i've then copied over but yeah i it, it helps me to make sense of what i've been reading it helps me to make sense of what i've been thinking that i perhaps if somebody tried to, if somebody asked me to try and explain it in, in spoken word, I wouldn't be able to do. But that time spent formatively writing, by the end of the process, I kind of got down what I actually think about something. So I've been trying to do that quite a lot recently about lots of things that over the years, whilst I've been teaching, I've just not had the time to write about and just trying to capture the essence of something that I thought and, and that people probably ask me, well, how do you do that? How do you make sure that, you know, a certain thing happens in the classroom? And I'm like, I don't really know. And this is probably, you know, David Weston talks about this sort of thing in terms of like a curse of expertise that sometimes you just don't know how you know what you know and you, you perhaps can't even explain it. So I think writing is a really good way for me to do that. It's something that I've certainly encouraged other people to do in the past because I do think, I don't think it's kind of exclusive to certain people. I think probably most people could write in this sort of way. And it's, it's kind of a reflection as well, a tool for reflection. And then the other, the other form of writing is kind of summative writing. So something that you just know really well and it's time to put it down on the page. And it's those ones that kind of just come very quickly and you don't have to put too much thought into them because you've kind of done all the thinking and there's not much more to say about those ones other than in terms of a writing process particularly for those ones i will write in my head 
as as I'm going about my daily business. Sometimes I'll make a note of phrases and things, but otherwise it's all just sitting there because I'm putting the words together in my head as I go along and then and then it comes out onto the page. So I, I think quite a lot of my writing process is actually the thinking part um, and that when I come down to to put it on the page, it doesn't take much longer because I've already done that thinking. And and I think I think that's it. I think that's all I do. In terms of the formative writing, it's not just the thinking that goes into it. It's, it is usually a lot of reading as well and trying to work out what on earth this research paper is actually saying to us. Um, and and yeah, some sometimes I'll do them kind of alongside so i'll take a quote from the text and then try and say what it's saying in writing uh to help as i said to help me to understand but yeah i think otherwise i'll follow one of those two processes depending on what it is and i've probably not changed too much i, th I think in the past i might have tried to make it i probably worked harder in the past on making the writing kind of very i don't know i don't know what the word is <laughs> just better but now i'm i'm more i want to get it simple and i want to get it down that's kind of more the priority now that's amazing i mean sometimes like say i'm a, a vigilating sat i'll plan out presentations in my head like have mixed imaginary slideshows because you can't yeah. do anything <laughs> so why not just prep this but i've never tried yeah. writing something solely in my mind so i'm going to try that you know. Yeah, do it. And the the other thing I have done actually is using the the voice dictation thing on my phone. So one particular thing, which was actually a, not a blog, although it is a blog post now, it was a like a speech. I wrote it by speaking it, and the phone just recorded it all, and then I went back and um, edited it. And I did it walking around the woods near my house. And now, whenever I walk around those woods, I remember what I was saying at various points, like Sherlock Holmes mind palace type thing. It's like these visual reminders. That tree reminds me that I said that thing. Um, and But it really helped me when I delivered the speech because I was kind of on this mental walk um, and I was able to remember what came next because of that. It was very strange. Uh, it's not something I've fully explored, but I've done it once and it was... A kind of interesting experience yeah because people who do that really well seem to make it look really easy don't they but i reckon there's a lot of prep goes into that kind of situation yeah yeah definitely um, how do you write about things that you see are you reacting in real time or do you think okay over the next period i want to talk about this because this is the message i've got to share it's a bit of both and i think more recently it's become more deliberate in terms of what kind of services I want to try and sell to people. Uh, I will be open and honest about that. Most of the time, like if if new, if you knew the work that I'd been doing in a school or in, you know, in, in my job, you would recognise everything in that blog post from being something that I've experienced. I, I, I kind of feel... Well, if I've dealt with this, then I might as well record it so that it might help other people. I think it's probably kind of a way of processing 
certain things that have gone on and particularly in terms of that formative kind of writing it's about learning new things as well but yeah it's, it's mostly taken from what's going on i don't really have time to be trying to write other things that aren't like the things that are on my mind anyway i've got i've got a couple of lists of kind of future blog posts and things that i could write but most of the time it's kind of inspired by the work that i'm doing with a particular school and now I'll, I'll just write down what i'm doing and for example the one that i published this week is because i'm prepping that stuff for for next year for a school and I actually needed to go through that process to think about what I was going to put into that um, kind of CPD content. There's certainly the blogs I'm most interested in reading, those ones that have that direct link to things that are happening in the classroom. You know, not that mm -hmm. others aren't interesting, but I think, you know, there's certainly there's an element to which you want to know how this works on the ground or what someone else has thought so that you can sort of build on, on that in your own practice. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, it, and even if you think I totally don't agree with that, um, you've then got, well, if I don't agree with that, then I probably think the opposite. So now I know what I think. Um, so, so it'll help either way. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So searching out for things that you don't agree with in longer form is definitely better than searching for 240 characters or 280 characters, whatever it yeah. might be. Um, yeah. And I think yeah, if someone's taken time to write a blog post and you, and you still don't agree, well, then, you know, perhaps it's not meant <laughs> to happen, but at least you, you've sort of taken the time yeah. to give it due consideration. Yeah. So you almost mentioned, you know, you're, like I said, being very honest, you, you know, you want to try and guide people towards your new endeavor, you know, which I, I, th I think is yeah. fair because that's the way the world works. And also you've got a message to share. So I think it'd be really interesting because the things that have stood out for me on sort of social media, the conversations around subject leadership and sort of the things you've been trying to do to engage subject leaders, who I think are typically underserved in terms of the professional mm. development that is on offer to them. What, what would your yeah. guiding principles for subject leadership be? Yeah, so there's, I mean, I think there's so much to say about subject leadership. And I, I think I initially started out by doing a kind of half day thing with a little snippet of this, that and the other. And as I've gone along, it's just grown into this huge list of things that I think subject leaders need to know about and need to be able to do. And I think, you know, we all know why subject leaders have got this um, kind of increased responsibility. And I don't think we've actually mentioned, oh no, we did, we did mention them, but Ofsted um, have kind of placed this responsibility on subject leaders. And I, I actually think it's, it's right. I don't think it all should sit with the the head teacher or the kind of senior leaders at the, the top end of it, as it were, and that actually it's all about what everybody knows within a school and that, yeah, if you're a subject leader, then you have got a job to do. And But there's a lot to it. So I think I've kind of come up with four things, but probably on another day, I would come up with a different four things. And maybe this is just a reflection of what I'm thinking about the most. Maybe it's just... Um, a summary of all the different schools I've worked with on this and what their key kind of considerations have been. So the first thing, and I only realized this really recently, is that I would really want to encourage subject leaders that they aren't a leader of a subject, but they are a leader of a team of people teaching that subject. 
because I think kind of coming from the past, you know, I, I told you that I was an art leader um, in my RQT year. And then for, I think, four years after that, my role then was not really much to do with the people. It was to do with the kind of practicalities. It was more uh, more of an administration role than, than leadership. So, for example, I completed the Artsmark Gold application, 60 whatever pages. That took up loads of my time. I made sure that, you know, year four had enough clay for their art project and that there was enough sugar paper in the drawers and that those drawers were tidied like every day because those paper drawers always need tidying. Like that was what I was kind of concerned with back then, but the role has changed so much. Um, and and what, what we need to think about is the fact that, well, we're leading people in teaching these subjects and therefore our leadership has to kind of focus around, to put it crudely, getting those teachers to teach your subject well without kind of seeing those teachers as part of your team it becomes a much more difficult job when you start to see subject leadership as a leadership role that, that concerns a team of people you start to think differently and you start to think okay so these people need to know what my priorities are they need to know what the strengths and weaknesses are and i think sometimes we can we want to hold back on those things because it feels like you're pointing the finger at your mates basically you know, we need to improve this in art because you lot aren't teaching it. And that can feel very personal. But I think a team approach where you're open and honest is going to get you a lot further. So, yeah, you're not leading a subject. You're leading people in teaching that subject. I think the second thing uh, is that you just need to know you can't do it all at once. And I think as as senior leaders who've seen more of leadership, you know that really well uh, probably from making the mistake of trying to do too much at once uh, but as a subject leader where there's this competition really for for time and for for who does what and when you've you've just got to be really realistic and and see that not everything can be done so you might have a subject and you might know well we need to do x y and z but actually think only x is possible in this year and i was listening to an episode um and it's lloyd he's written about it since in a magazine i think hasn't he about this process of thinking um what what you need to do now and then what's going to be kind of on the back burner for later and i think subject leaders really need to get their heads around that i think it's important that you can say well we're focusing on this now because we think this is the priority because of whatever the reason is but we also know there are some other things that need changing, but they can't be done now. It's not realistic. However, next year or in three years, we plan to tackle that. And in terms of Ofsted, it's about being able to really clearly articulate how you've prioritised and, and why you've prioritised those things. And, and to show them as well that you do know what the other things are that need doing, but that they just can't be done yet. I think in terms of subject leadership and not doing it all at once, you also have to consider that every other subject leader's got their their priorities and getting a bit of collaboration in there. So thinking about how you will stagger your implementation to make sure that you're not, that teachers aren't trying to start all these new things in all these 
subjects all at once. So maybe kind of sharing it out across the year a bit more. Yeah, cooperating and planning together. A third thing is is about giving teachers what they need. Now, this is really contextual. Some teachers in some schools might not need that much from their subject leader. It might depend on which subject it is. And that, again, would depend on the strengths within the staff team in your school. But I do think if you want teachers to teach things well, then think about the resources that you provide for them. So do you need to go down to sort of medium term unit overview level in, in week one, you teach this content in week two, you teach this. Do you need to go down to the level of actually saying, this is a really good website for that part of the sequence. This is a really good activity for that part of the sequence, kind of putting things there for them to make sure that you are supporting them in the teaching of that subject. Um, again, in the past, I think that's kind of stopped at the resource level, particularly more uh, practical creative subjects. You kind of think, well, yeah, you know, all the paintbrushes are there, all the vices and saws are there, all the little bulbs and batteries are there. So you just get on and do it. But I do think that as subject leaders, we can, it's not, it's not about being more directive and saying you must do this it's about putting the support in place and, and putting the things there that teachers need to be able to do a good job and then i think that the the fourth thing i would say is just that you can make a difference and you can make changes and that although time always seems like a barrier there are ways around it and i think <laughs> it sounds a bit rubbish really but having that positive kind of optimistic mindset will help you to find the ways to get things done. And so I just encourage subject leaders that they they can do stuff, they can make a difference. I think that's really important because sometimes it can feel like you're, you're just floating in the middle, but in, in really effective schools, mm. you know, you, you'd be driving things forward and it's mm. definitely worth the time investment. I mean, like yourself, maybe not exactly the same. In my second year, I became RE lead. You had, an, you had a background in art, so that put you at a slight advantage. Yeah. I, my my <laughs> limited experience of religious education was very narrow because of where I'd grown up and the context and things. What, what would you suggest to people who end up in that situation where they're, they're leading a subject and they don't know much about it? Yeah, well, I, I think subject knowledge is key. I, I don't think you can be a very effective subject leader without knowing enough about your subject and that is a bit of a difficult message really because it does mean quite a lot of work on your part but i would say if you're a subject leader in that position then your number one priority if you're thinking about action plans and what you need to do in the next year then your priority should be you and your own subject knowledge and there's you know the subject kind of content knowledge there's kind of pedagogical knowledge as well that's specific to your subject there's the kind of old sort of keeping up with changes in your subject thing, which um, is kind of gets on, gets on teacher standards and things like that. But yeah, I, I would prioritize that as something which needs to be, which, which underpins everything, because how can you monitor your subject if you don't know it? Um, how can you improve your subject if you don't know it? So I would say um, prioritize that. And I think there's plenty of resources out there as well uh, that can help you as a subject leader to um, improve your subject knowledge. So you've got 
subject association memberships, which come with journals and often kind of free online CPD and things. I know Mary Myatt's putting together these kind of subject leader group, uh, again, uh, online sessions. Uh, I think the, the kind of wealth of kids' books out there now that um, non-fiction books around the subjects and usually quite specific to the the national curriculum content because the publishers know that that's what's going to sell. Um, and, th and then actually going as far as, you know, watch some documentaries about whatever it is, history, geography, um, read some kind of grown-up books about your subject, find out more, uh, because I think, although it's, although I think it's really important to read stuff at the kids' level, it often doesn't give you the bigger picture and uh, how things connect together. So I'm thinking, you know, for example, history, you might get these isolated facts about your Anglo-Saxon kings and, and so on, but without a, a greater understanding of the context of the time, which you will only get through reading more adult kind of facing stuff, uh, you might not quite understand the subject as well as you could. Think, things like podcasts as well, again, thinking about the teaching of my subject and also the, the more general content. There's so much out there now that's kind of like get it on your headphones on the way to work or playing through the, the car audio system or whatever that you can you can pick up a lot by doing that. But yeah, I think the main message to that person would be prioritise it and kind of stand your ground if someone questions that. Yeah, I think that's that's going to be invaluable advice because I reckon it's quite a common occurrence. You know, you're talking about podcasts. Oh, I mean, I, I must have three or four history podcasts on the go at the minute. Soaking up yeah. all these... <laughs> periods of history that I had no idea about because it just wasn't mm. you know the cricket there's not enough time in school to learn about all these things is there I think um it's probably worth saying that Adam Smith put our subject knowledge compendium episode into a notion workbook which is some sort of okay. software that works for personal organization but you can you can make really detailed notes so if anyone's interested in in that for their subject knowledge he's got he's taken that episode and making it something even even greater than the, the sum of its parts. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the other thing as well. There's there's people on Twitter who have that real speciality. So, yeah, I would go to him if I was thinking about something to do with RE um, or Stuart Tiffany if I was thinking about history or whatever. You know, there's certain people who know their stuff on social media. So another plug for social media and its positive benefits. I'd always recommend subject leaders kind of find those people because they're so so generous with their time and thoughts and the things they share as well. What do you have planned for subject leaders in the new academic year? Um, so I'm I'm working with various schools and trusts on a more prolonged kind of sequence of CPD really that that is that I've matched to the points in the year and the, the kind of times when you need to be doing certain things uh, to make sure that you are um, developing your subject, make sure that you're kind of analysing, uh, reflecting, uh, you know, getting towards the end of the year, being ready for the next year and so on. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm building quite a lot of content around how to be a subject leader kind of not not day to day, but half term to half term. I think you can you can often get really good advice, but wrong time. 
um, uh, when you don't get to put it into practice. So I'm really trying to kind of match the seasons with with what I'll be delivering to these various schools and trusts. Um, and, and to make it really practical, really, so that those sessions that people do attend, they actually come away from that having done part of the work because I'm so aware of the fact that, you know, they might they might go away and not ever get another <laughs> hour to do something. So that so those sessions themselves need to be really productive in terms of not only what input you get from me as somebody who's kind of done that process a few times but also kind of making your own plans and making your own decisions and and having time to think things through so, yeah simply because you might just not get that time elsewhere if your guiding principles and or anything to go by i'm sure it'd be very very high quality so that sounds sounds awesome and so what does the future hold for aiden severs what are you looking to over the next 12 months okay um well, the next 12 months, <laughs> again, honestly, I hope I get enough work to be able to carry on doing this. I've absolutely loved my first seven months. I'm so thankful to the the schools who kind of taken a punt, really, because what well, they've had a few blogs and things to go on, but otherwise I was an unknown quantity. Um, but yeah, I've got, got lots of exciting things kind of booked in already. I'm doing some stuff with some of the MPQs, some ECT and ECT mentor things, um, potentially some uh, some fairly big writing um, commitments, but I'm not sure about that at the moment. I mean, probably by the time this goes out, I'll, I'll know one way or the other. Uh, but then, yeah, getting into schools, because it's, it is being in schools and that, that is the thing I love. You know, my, my favourite days are the ones where I get to go in, I get to kind of orientate myself to the context of the school, I get to speak to leaders, I get to think about, like, alongside them with what their kind of presenting issues are, to do that problem-solving process, to bring my experience, to bring what I know from research and all of that sort of thing, and to kind of work out what the solutions are and then start helping them to build. Uh, that's that's what I love doing, being with people, kind of tussling with the, the real issues and so far and, and hopefully kind of coming to a place where they're ready to take that on themselves. What I don't want to do is create any sort of dependency. It's, it is about skilling people up as, as you go along and, and, and I suppose helping to generate the confidence to be able to do it themselves because, you know, schools need to be not self-contained necessarily, but yeah, everything should be a CPD opportunity, I think. So I'm hoping that I get to do some more of that alongside the CPD kind of things that I've mentioned as well. So the plan is just to carry on with that for now. Excellent. Well, I mean, fingers crossed it goes well. I'm sure it will. I mean, it seems to been a really successful Thanks. first seven months, you know, takes a lot of bravery especially post pandemic to to make yeah. that move but uh, yeah yeah i hope yeah. you continue to go from from strength to strength thank you i mean it's been wonderful talking to you today and you know i think hopefully this won't be the last time hopefully you'll come back and join us for some of the chats because you know, normally when i i do long form interviews and then those people get sucked into the the panel of people <laughs> who, who give me their wednesday nights yeah. <laughs> yeah i mean 
it, it might mean that I've got fewer things to listen to on my uh, commute, but <laughs> yeah, pretty. Yeah, Chris Such doesn't listen back to episodes that he features in. I don't know if it's... Oh, I... <laughs> no, I couldn't. I've never... No. Yeah, the thing was, he was supposed to be quality assuring them at one point, so <laughs> who knows what happened to those episodes. <laughs> yeah. All the ones I've heard have been good. I think all I said to do is say thank you very much for joining me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. I've loved it.